Good morning. I love that song that Kim sang. And if you did not know, that event takes place there within that holy week. And uh, today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day that we, we uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem and embarked on the whole journey that would end in the cross and the resurrection. And so I hope that you'll be following this week the, the, uh, uh, the days of Holy Week and uniquely remembering Jesus during this, this time. Um, yeah, I would like to grab some pancakes after the service. Hopefully there'll be a few left. Um, there typically is not, but we'll see. Hey, if you are a guest this morning, and especially if you're someone who is trying to figure out if the Christian faith is true, let me set the frame for you this morning. It is one of those mornings where we need to bring clarity to an issue that brings uh, differences amongst sincere uh, believers. And it is especially a challenging one because there are well-reasoned arguments on both sides. There is a logic to both sides. The differences totter on a thin piece of ground, so to speak, on the way that we think about power. Our comfort are our discomfort with divine power. The differences dart back and forth in a seeming no man's land between the divine and the human, between heaven and earth. And because of that, it's complicated. Now, already... With just one minute into the service, you're asking, what are you talking about? Let me try to clarify. If we believe in God, and if we believe he is active in the world, then we wonder, how does divine power actually translate into the mundane, everyday existence? And if it did, what would it look like? Would we recognize it or would we discount it? Would we fear it? Would we reject it because it proves we are actually not in control? It proves we cannot manuscript every outcome. Or finally, would we see its potential and try to commodify it in some way, channeling it for our own advantage? The Bible gives examples to all of these responses to power. To put it simply, we are either afraid of divine power, we abuse divine power, or we administer it as an entrusted gift. Do you see how I worked all three A's there? Pretty clever, huh? Yeah. But seriously, which one defines you? Which one of these defines your relationship to divine power? Are you afraid of it? Do you, are you tempted to abuse it? Or do you administer it as an entrusted gift? Now, if you are a non-Christian this morning, perhaps you care very little for this debate that we'll introduce this morning in a little bit. But maybe, just maybe, this morning will help you evaluate your own beliefs about divine power. And additionally, I hope you will see the respect that I have for those who believe differently than me. 
Yes, it might be naive, but I still hold out hope that believers can model truth and kindness. That I can disagree with you and be differentiated enough that it does not impact our relationship. Differentiation means that I see and respect your individuality as well as my own. And part of differentiation is being internally convinced of what you believe, the whys and the whats. And the resulting security of that is not feeling threatened when others disagree with you. Okay? So, let's pray and then we'll keep going. And I'd like to include in my prayer this morning, a lot of you, a lot of you, a number of you do uh, educate your children in private schools. And I thought that what happened this past week may have been uh, potentially and it's certainly disturbing to you. Actually, a number of you teach in private schools. So I'd like to say a special prayer this morning for families affected and those of you that the residual has been with you all week. Father, help us this morning to particularly be willing and able to inventory our own hearts on what we believe about you and about divine power, this place where heaven and earth kiss, where they meet. And I pray that you would give to us boatloads, an avalanche of discernment and understanding and insight and wisdom as to what the Bible says. And Father, I pray this morning for every teacher here and every uh, family who's, again, this morning particularly in a private school setting, that in Christ's name, the ones that are here, that you would bring them a unique sense of your comfort and your presence. And Father, certainly for the families that suffered that loss, terrible loss in Nashville, we ask you that your comfort, Father, would be with them. And I, Father, I believe that I read that even the pastor of the church, his daughter was killed in that. We lift up his family this morning in their grief and in their loss. And now we ask you to lead us, Father. Come, Holy Spirit, and help us to receive every gift that you desire to give to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Okay, friends. All right. Praise the Lord. Okay, so where have we been? For the last eight weeks, we have been describing the person and power of the Holy Spirit. He is God's empowered presence to come alongside of us, to fill us, to speak to us, to give us courage. We learned last week that the kingdom Jesus proclaimed God's rule and reign has already broken into the world and is giving us a foretaste of the coming age. We learn as a part of the kingdom breaking in is the distribution of spiritual gifts so that each and every one of us can participate in the kingdom of God growing what we call the Great Commission. 
And this week marks a pivot in our series as we begin to discuss the specific gifts, including what are called the sign and miraculous gifts. And throughout May and June, we're going to dive into many of those, uh, all the gifts, into more detail. And then this series will culminate with our Holy Spirit Conference, the weekend of July 7th through the 9th, our featured speaker Sam Storms will close the weekend on Sunday morning addressing the topic of Jesus as our model for ministry. But will you stand and let's read together um, 1 Corinthians 12. I'll read this. It's our text for today, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one is speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities... But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. And these are all empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. And take a seat. This is God's Word. Amen. Amen. Notice in verse 7, everyone receives a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Everyone receives a gift that allows them to partner with God to accomplish His will on the earth. We become God's co-workers. And when we exercise our gifts, Jesus does a repeat performance of His life through us. Now, Nick is going to do more on that theme next week. The specific question I want to answer today revolves around these supernatural gifts, verses 8 through 10. Now, gifts that can certainly look weird to the onlooking world, let alone to us in the church. And reading this list likely conjured up all kinds of Images in your mind, many of them from movies you have seen or stories you have heard or experiences you have had, uh, some tinged with a sense of the otherworldly, the weird, the theatrical, or the contrived. And despite all our preconceptions, these are the more supernatural gifts, say as opposed to gifts of service or administration. 
Now, we'll argue later that every gift is supernatural. These are sometimes called the sign gifts or charismatic gifts, gifts of healing or tongues or prophecy or miracles. And the $64 million question is, are they meant for today? Or did they cease with the closing of the New Testament and the completion of the Bible? Now, that latter, that they are ceased, is what I grew up believing and what I was taught. And the line of reasoning was that the supernatural manifestations had ceased when the Bible was completed. They existed for a season for the purpose of authenticating Jesus as Messiah and providing authority for the writing of Scripture. The view theologians like to call this is cessationism. And here's just a very simple definition of it. The supernatural sign gifts ceased once their purpose was fulfilled. Well, here's the answer to the $64 million question. I no longer believe that. We no longer believe that, the pastors. We believe all these gifts are available. And not only should we, open, should we be open to their use, but we should actively seek their release into the life of the church. We believe we need these gifts if we are going to fulfill the assignment the Holy Spirit has given to us. If we are going to do our part to fulfill the Great Commission, like a car running on all cylinders, we need all the power that God has made available through His gifts. Now, theologians like to call this view uh, continuationism or a continuationist. And that simply means that all the gifts continue and are available for the church today. Now, again, you ask the question, why do I believe that? Well, simply, I believe it is what the Scriptures teach. This book is and remains our authority for what we believe and for what we practice and in this case, for example, I am not aware of a single scripture that explicitly tells us that the gifts have ceased. Now, the closest thing that would arrive at that would be in 1 Corinthians 13. And let's just spend a moment there and look at that passage. You can turn there. It's page 960. Yeah, I've heard of 1 Corinthians 13. Yes, it's the love chapter. Likely all of you have heard it read in a, at a wedding. And in the beginning of this chapter, it tells us that tongues and prophecies, supernatural knowledge and mountain-moving faith will all pass away, but the question is when. Let's pick it up and read the passage beginning in verse 8. Paul says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, 
we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. When do they pass away, these gifts, tongues, prophecies, mountain-moving faith? When the perfect comes. These gifts are imperfect, they are partial, and they will pass away. Well, when does the perfect come? Is it when the Bible was completed around 90 A.D., or is it at the future return of Jesus? Now, Paul is somewhat poetic here, if I could say, because he's using analogies to illustrate truth. He uses several analogies. Growing from a child from a man, looking dimly into a mirror. What do these, these analogies point to? What is he pointing to when he says we will see face to face, when we will be fully known, when we will have a fully mature reasoning, when we will have a self-understanding no longer clouded by the sinful nature? And what does perfect mean as in when the perfect comes? Indeed, perfect is the absence of sin or the absence of impurity, but but the word perfect in the New Testament is much more. The New Testament word also means completion. It means fulfillment. It means reaching the end of a goal when all of things are brought to their climax. Now, if you will, please just think about this with me carefully. Yes, the Bible is infallible. And everything the Bible affirms is true. And it is all sufficient for us. But Bible knowledge alone is not the ultimate goal. Nor does the Bible contain a complete revelation of who God is. The completion of the Bible is not the fulfillment of all things. But rather, it informs us and it points us to the one who will fulfill all things, Jesus. The ultimate goal is to see him face to face without the veil that now separates us. Loving him and being in his presence is the fulfillment of all things. So what is the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13? The Corinthians were abusing, if you know the book, they were abusing these supernatural gifts. They were using God's power for their own agendas and glory. And Paul is saying that the gifts are incomplete, they are temporary, they will pass away because a time is coming where everything will be brought to its climax, complete and fulfilled. And what will last is eternal love. Faith and hope abide, but even these will fade away in the age to come because they're no longer needed. That is why Paul says love is the greatest. So when I look at the context for 1 Corinthians 13, when I look at what 
Paul points to relative to the truth of these passages. I am persuaded for these reasons to understand that when Paul wrote, when the perfect comes, he is referring to the return of Jesus to initiate the resurrection and to inaugurate the new age. That is when we will no longer look in the mirror dimly. That is when we will know and be fully known. Now, if we go on to this, and thus, if these impartial and imperfect gifts, partial and imperfect, if they do not pass away, if they do not pass away until he comes, how long are they needed? They're needed until he returns. And further, we should take note that even though the gifts are being abused, Paul is not counseling to abandon them, but to use them in the right way. That's the entire point of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And this is also the implication of something Paul wrote in the introduction to the book. Look at verses 5, 6, and 7 in the first chapter. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. See again how he sets the gifts relative to they're needed until the return of Christ. These and other scriptures have been persuasive in me rethinking my view, concluding that I believe these gifts are viable for today. And slowly, they, slowly, very slowly, they are becoming a part of my experience. But I am open to their genuineness because of the foundation of Scripture. Now, for my remaining time, what I'd like to do is just to take you a little bit more into my own journey through this. Because you might be wondering, like, how could I arrive at a change like this, and actually, if I could explain further, it's not truly a radical change, um, but that's a lot of detail. But how could I arrive at this change so late in my ministry? And as I do that, I also want to come back to what I said about our relationship to divine power. Now, undoubtedly, friends, you have to go through your own journey. You have to develop your own convictions you have to search this out for yourself to see if these things are true, and we wholeheartedly encourage that. I recognize there are different convictions in our church on issue. There actually have always been, and there will continue to be, and I affirm that. About three or four years ago, we began to expose our leaders to what we were thinking on these issues, but indeed, this is the first time that we've communicated it so plainly on a Sunday morning. My journey, as I said earlier, has been all about clarifying Scripture, like the verses that we read earlier, and reading them for their intended meaning, and not allowing them to be filtered by my own prejudices or false conclusions. Filters can really block our vision of reality. I've seen your enhanced Facebook profiles. I've seen them. And you look good. You do look good.
But filters subtly can blur the lines between the real and virtual. And when I removed the filters in this particular area, it also tapped into my complicated relationship with power. Was I afraid of it? Could I recognize it? Earlier again, I said we can either abuse divine power, we can be afraid of divine power, or we can administer it as an entrusted gift. Here is my first filter I had to remove so I could see the scriptures clearly. I'll just give two. Number one, I needed to read the scriptures as they were intended, not as they were being practiced. At least in terms of the stories that I heard. In this area of supernatural gifts, in the early stages of my Christian life, I encountered or heard, actually they were the only stories I ever heard, related to this area was about the abuse of power. Leveraging or at least pretending to leverage God's power for the purpose of fame or wealth. Years ago, many years ago, in a different city, as a young pastor, I remember walking into the auditorium of a famous, very famous televangelist. If I said his name, you at least 50 and over would remember him. He would later be exposed as fraudulent. And on the stage at 10 a.m. in the morning, with no one in the audience, there were four or five people standing on the stage. Now, that was not strange. But what was out of place is that a man was lying on the floor, flat, on the floor, motionless, as if dead. Now, there was no EMT there. Nobody was attending to him. Nobody was asking how he was doing. It was weird. And the other four or five people were just standing there talking amongst themselves. I mean, I was afraid to ask, but frankly, it looked like a rehearsal. It was bizarre. Now, there were other cases of excess and abuse that seemed to fill the inbox of my world related to those who practiced these supernatural gifts, from snake handling to telling people you can't be saved unless you speak in tongues, to contrived stories of healing or outlandish prophecies that, lo and behold, only ever seem to baptize the American dream. Now, if these stories were true, at best they are a misuse of power, and at worst, worse, they are an abuse of power. And... Newsflash, this is nothing new. It happened in New Testament times. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8, page 916. It's a story about a man named Simon. And as you turn there, this is when the story of Jesus was breaking out of the mothership Jerusalem into the surrounding regions. Let me start reading beginning at verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now Simon 
is a guy involved in the black arts. He has a relationship with magic. I'm sorry, with power. New age guy, right? In ancient times. But he encounters Jesus, and even he believes. The light shines in. Hold on. The story's not quite over. The next scene shifts to Jerusalem. And what happens in Samaria catches the attention of the mother's ship. And so to find out what's going on, they send their two big guns, Peter and John, to investigate. And when they get there, they recognize genuine faith. But the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them. So they pray that the Spirit would come on these new Christians as it did for them at Pentecost. And though we are not given details, the evidence of the Spirit's coming must have been powerful and profound. Simon was in the room where it happened. And he responds. Look at what he says in verse 18 and 19. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Whether through natural discernment or a word of knowledge, Peter sees to the depth of Simon's heart, and he says, verse 20, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Simon tried to harness God's power to his own advantage, just as he had done with the black arts. It happened then, it happens today. But here is the point I'm driving at. We cannot evaluate Scripture's rightness or wrongness based on how well it is practiced or, in this case, mispracticed. Excesses, abuses, or a misplaced emphasis does not make the Scripture itself wrong. The Scripture needs to be understood and interpreted based on its intended meaning. Not a filter or a prejudice that we have. For me, I allowed the abuse of power to filter or persuade how I viewed these Scriptures without giving them a fair hearing causing me to throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater. Given all the nonsense, I gave myself a free pass not to ever address these difficult passages. Now imagine if we did this in other areas of the Christian life. For example, imagine if we did it with evangelism. Imagine that if every time you walked by some wild-haired, screaming preacher who was maligning people indiscriminately, or every time you channel surf and happen upon the brow-beating of a televangelist, or his or her shameful, shameful appeal for money, when that happens, do you stop? Do you vow to stop evangelizing? Do you go through your Bible and cut out all the verses that talk about evangelism or preaching the word in season and out of season? Of course you don't. You think, if this is what evangelism looks like, this can't be from God. And so you go back to the Scriptures and you figure out the right way. 
Okay? So that's my first filter. Making my judgment based on how it was practiced, not the scriptures themselves. Here's a second one. And I gave this to Stu earlier this morning. Stu, I'm not sure you're able to get it or not. Thank you, Stu. Marvelous job. <laughs> Reading the scriptures as they were intended, not through my lens of experience. My second filter was reading Scripture through the lens of my own experience. Many of these things, miracles or prophecies, supernatural knowledge, casting out evil spirits, for the most of us, they are outside of our range of experience. Yet, if we read the New Testament, we see Jesus doing it, we see the apostles doing it, we see others doing it, like Philip, the 70 that Jesus sent out, we see miracles throughout the Bible. But for most of us, this is not part of our typical experience. And especially in the age of the Enlightenment, when things like the supernatural have been explained away under an avalanche of education that sought to rid the world of all mystery and provide a rational explanation for everything. And given that supernatural manifestations are typically outside of our experience, given the saturation of education that explains away the existence of God, is it no wonder that we either dismiss or are afraid of divine power? Again, friends, this is not altogether new. And even in the ancient world, even in the pre-enlightenment age, we see this complicated relationship with power. Turn, if you would, to page 865. It's Luke chapter 8. I'm going to start reading beginning in verse 34. And again, let me just describe it, the context, as you get there. Jesus here comes upon a man who was demon-possessed. He was not mentally ill. I mean, he may have been mentally ill as well, but he's also demon-possessed. And he was a total nuisance to people. Imagine that. He was the guy you wish he was just not in your neighborhood. He ran around naked. Sally, close the blinds, close the blinds. So the people sent him to live literally in the cemetery. Every child in the neighborhood knew about him because every parent had had that talk about him and staying away. He would rip off his shackles when he was bound. I mean, the homeowners association had to pay a fee so they could hire a full-time guard to keep an eye on him and keep him in his place. Now, all kidding aside, this guy is dangerous and violent. And this guy, but he knows he needs to be set free. And so with, I mean, the picture is phenomenal. Read the passages before. This guy is utterly desperate. He's, and he asked Jesus to set him free, and Jesus does it. Then Jesus drives out the demons in him, there were many, and sends them into a herd of pigs, and they rush down into the lake and are drowned. It is an amazing display of power. Now, if you're a farmer or a pig lover, there are various theories about this, but we can't jump into that today, all right? That's another message. For our purposes, let's pick it up at verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. 
the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. I mean, the irony is just so thick, you cut it with a knife. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people in the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Do you see their relationship with divine power? They were afraid. This was outside their experience. And they felt threatened by it. And they pressed on Jesus to leave. Again, do you capture the irony of their fear? The hypocrisy of their fear. Even though they were terrified of this man, I mean something really to be afraid of, he is now completely free and in his right mind. He's ready to become a contributing member of their society and babysit their kids. And what do they do? They push the healer out of the city. Because if he did this, what other parts of our lives can he mess around with? Again, how does this story relate to my journey? You see, I had a filter that if something was not part of my direct experience, then it cannot be real. And if God really did show his power in a way that did not fit my grid of how I thought his power should manifest itself, then it must not be real or true. Now, of course, friends, listen. I, you know, there's probably 25 things this morning where I can be misunderstood, right? That's just the, that's just the reality of a 40 or 45-minute talk. Of course, I am not suggesting that we readily accept everything we hear without facts or accept it simply on hearsay evidence. Listen, I went to law school. Actually, I did not go to law school. <laughs> My son went to law school, and while he was living with us, almost every night of our dinner, we would talk about the case studies he was learning. And we would talk about the... And then when he needed to... Uh, prepare for an exam, he asked me to go through all the notes. I could basically take the law bar, the bar exam. <laughs> I'm really lying. I'm not really, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm true about my son and true about the dinners, but no, I could not take the bar exam. Caleb Johnson here just took it. I, Caleb, I'm not saying I could take it. <laughs> took it and passed, by the way. Amen. Amen. Back to my text. <laughs> Always get in trouble when I leave the text. What I needed to do is bring clarity to the way I read scriptures as they were intended to be understood. Not read them through the filter of my prejudices. And when I did that, I came to the conclusion that these sign or miraculous or charismatic gifts are intended to be in operation in the church today. But as I said earlier... I urge you to search the scriptures for yourself, and whatever your conviction, we can all agree that we should neither abuse God's power, nor dismiss it, nor be afraid of it. It is a power that can set us free, 
just as it set free the man possessed by a legion of demons. I want to close this morning, and we need to close. We're going to, we're going to take communion in a moment here and, and return to worship. And again, reminding you that we, we, we worship, we say, we sing to God, we sing about God, we, give, we sing prayers to God as a response to what we hear in the message. We take communion as we remember Jesus. But to close, I want to look at one last passage. You might, yeah. Again, let me set it up. It's John 13, chapters 3, or verses 3 through 5, page 900. And it's really fitting to share today as we're entering into Holy Week. This is on the eve of Jesus' betrayal. And it's so pertinent as we anticipate remembering Good Friday and Easter. Jesus is about to share his Passover meal with his disciples. And I want us to see what it says about Jesus' relationship with power. Verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. And that he had come from God and would return to God. So, what did he do? He got up from the table, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Did you capture this? Capture what's going on here? How much authority does Jesus have? More than a governor? More than any king? more than any army, more than any institution, more than the United Nations, more than any international court. Jesus knew and understood and recognized the power that he possessed, the authority over everything. Imagine that power. And yet Jesus knows his origin. He knows his destiny. He recognizes who he is. What does Jesus do in his relationship with power? The same thing that we should do. He administers it. He administers it it as an entrusted gift. Jesus administered the power of God. He was a steward of it. He did not abuse it, nor was he afraid of it. And look at what he did with it. He washed the feet of those around him. Could there be a better picture of a relationship with divine power to serve and to lay down your life? And it is because he laid down his life for us. And I, I, I wonder if I could just interrupt for a moment. If someone could get me a, the bread and the, and the juice. I failed to bring it with me. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. It is because he laid his life down for us through divine power that we remember him today. It is because he resurrected through divine power that we celebrate him today. In his life, it is because he did miracle after miracle through divine power that we see his life and his heart to alleviate human suffering, 
as well as to give us a taste of what is to come. We are invited when we believe in Jesus to take symbols of his life into ours through something very earthly and mundane, a piece of bread that represents his body, a sip of juice that represents his blood. The elements together are a spiritual feast intended to satisfy us deeply and intended to picture taking his very life into ours in spiritual union. So together, if you can pull out your elements, let's go ahead and remember that the bread is for his body and let's take it together. represents his blood spilled and given for us. Let's take the juice together. 